Thank you, Randy. Good morning. It is good to see all of you this morning. As Alfonso mentioned, our hearts and prayers and desires for well-being are with the uh, people in the panhandle. Um, every year we have our blessed to be a blessing during the Thanksgiving uh, season, and we use those funds to provide meals and different kinds of uh, supplies for people in need, and typically it's been in the local area. Last year, we helped those that were affected by the hurricane uh, Irma, and uh, we took our Blessed to Be a Blessing offering and supplies and food to um, Makali. And this year, we're planning on doing that same type of thing, but with the panhandle. And so we'll have more announcements as we uh, as we get a little closer to the date, but it looks like Alfonso and others will be helping coordinate a trip to the Panhandle over the Veterans Day weekend. Um, that is a three-day weekend, and it will give us a little opportunity to have a little bit more time. You shouldn't have to lose any time from work, and children would be out of school. We would leave on the Friday evening or afternoon and then return on that Monday of, uh, of, of, of Veterans Day. And so uh, please mark that in your calendars. Be praying about that and setting aside your donations and, um, and preparing for, for any kind of relief that we can, we can provide our, our brothers and sisters and friends and family up in that area. When I was 18, I took a solo backpacking trip around the world. One of my stops was India, and I visited the Taj Mahal. Now, I had heard about it, I mean, as a typical 18-year-old in that particular time, I knew it was this really cool palace that a lot of people went to, and so I thought, well, let me go as well. As it turns out, it's quite more, much more than just a palace. In fact, it's not even a palace at all. It was built in the early to mid-1600s by an emperor named Shah Jahan, and he built it in memory of his wife of 19 years, who died while she was bearing their 14th child. So this is actually a tomb where her body is laid, and his was eventually also laid there. It's a mausoleum. It's a house, as it were, for their remains. It's probably one of the most elaborate and beautiful uh, tombs that you could have. But, you know, it's not uncommon for someone to build something beautiful or create something beautiful for the one that they love. And, and in our text for today, that's what David wants to do. David, a man after God's own heart, wanted to build something beautiful for God. As we continue our journey through the 16 key verses, perhaps most important verses in the Bible, uh, today we come to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, it might surprise you that many Old Testament scholars consider this text, 2 Samuel 7 verses 1 through 16, to be the most or definitely up in the top three most important texts in the Old Testament, especially as it relates to our Christian faith. It has been compared to the British Magna Carta. It's been, prepared, it's been compared to the U.S. Declaration of Independence. Two different texts that have inspired a whole people 
and help engender a national identity. And what we'll see as we get into this text is that we are all beneficiaries and we are all included in the promises that God will give David uh, in this particular chapter. So what I'd like to invite you to do, if you're able, is to stand as we read through this text and then we'll come back and kind of unpack it. So if you're able, please stand and let's read this text. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, this is King David, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone. And I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son And when he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love, my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. You may be seated. The word of the Lord. As we were reading, I'm sure you could catch glimpses of some familiar sounding phrases. But this is the the text that really brings it all together. So I I just kind of want to walk through it and, and unpack some things as we think through how this text functions for us in our Christian walk and our relationship with God. Now, David has come a long way from being a shepherd in Bethlehem the youngest and the smallest of eight sons. He's now king of Israel. He's had the fortune to unite the northern and the southern kingdoms together 
This is the beginning of the golden age of Israel, the united monarchy when everyone is kind of pulling together. Jerusalem has now been established as the capital city and the Ark of the Covenant, that Ark that uh, had the cherubim on top that was carried by poles so that it wouldn't be defiled by human hands, that Ark that where in between those wings God would come down, that Ark that represented the very presence of God through smoke and fire as they went through their pilgrimage in the desert, All these years that ark has been with them, indicating the presence of God. Now that ark is established in Jerusalem. And David is the king. It's interesting to realize that David started off as a person who was simply chosen by God. Didn't have any particular qualities. He was just a kid, the youngest kid. Perhaps he was the runt of the litter, as it were. But God was God chose him and he became God's anointed, not because of what he had done, but because of what God wanted to do through him. And true to his heart, as he's now in this wonderfully sturdy palace, this house that might have looked something as majestic as the Taj Mahal, as he's sitting looking out the window, and he sees this raggedy tent that has accompanied the people of Israel for all these years. He thinks, this isn't right. Here I am in this nice, sturdy palace, and and, and God's Ark of the Covenant is in this tent. There's a a, a movie called um, Leave No Trace, that tells the story of a man and his daughter who are living in the wild, in the the, the desert, the uh, the jungle, as it were, the 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 the, the woods of uh, of northwestern United States, Oregon and Washington. And they have chosen to live there, and they have made their life permanently in this tent. Some of you have gone camping, and you know what life looks like when you live in a tent. And sometimes when the storms get bad, you run to a hotel. Even if you brave it, you're definitely happy to be back home with a solid roof and a solid uh, uh, walls and a solid floor and a soft, cushiony bed. And David, as he's sitting in this comfort of the palace, thinks it's just not right. God shouldn't be out there. But we wonder if there might be something else going on. Because you see, up to this point, the relationship that the Israelites had with God was that it was a conditional relationship. The law of Moses, if you obey, then I will be with you and I will bless you. If you don't, I will pull my presence from you, which David, which Saul, the previous king, had just experienced God withdrew his love from Saul. So building a temple, while it also gets God out of the elements, as it were, it also kind of gives them some roots. Be a little harder to leave. Makes his presence with Israel a little more permanent. 
So this tension between true piety and self-serving considerations is at work. And when he proposes his idea to Nathan, the prophet, Nathan seems to give him a thumbs up. You go. God's with you. Knock it out of the park. Build the temple. Let's see, I can probably do this. Let me see. And there's Nathan's response. You have the blessing of the Lord. Well, it it, it turns out that Nathan's permission is really just his own voice. Because as we heard and as we'll see, uh, God didn't really give the thumbs up. So God appears to Nathan in a vision and says there's two basic reasons why David building a temple is really not a good idea. One, it could cause a theological misunderstanding. See, people in the ancient days believed that God, there were gods that lived in certain parts. There was a god of the valley and a god of the rivers and a god of the sea and a god of the harvest and a god of the sun. And there was a god for this area and there was a god for that area. And what God is telling Nathan and David is that God is not bound to any one place. That God actually prefers to be in a tent so that he can be mobile, he can be with the people as they go through their various challenges in life. A temple could negatively impact people's perceptions of their relationship with God. You could get to a point where you thought that you only found God in the temple. Ever heard something like that? Where church, the building, is where you go to find God? We've had individuals, and and I'm not criticizing or making fun, we've had individuals drive by who are going through a significant crisis in their life, Knock on the door, say, hey, can I just come and sit and pray? Because I need to be in the presence of God. Part of me wants to say, God's with you out there, wherever you are. But part of me understands the need for quiet and solitude. And so we say, sure, you can sit here. Well, God didn't want to foster that misunderstanding that he was limited to a place. But but the second error, as it were, or the second issue was, second reason, is that I've never asked for a temple. I've never said that I wanted a temple. And here we see this tension between what God wants and what we want. And it's a little bit too easy for us to assume that whatever we want is what God wants. And so we ask God to bless what we're doing. We make a decision, we're going down this path and say, God, I need you to rubber stamp what I've got in mind because I'm going this way and I just hope that you're also going that same direction. God's glory was not diminished because he was living in a tent. In fact, God's glory was just as strong When he was in a tent, when he was in a temple, or whatever place he calls home. Now, 
there is no suggestion that the temple itself would never be built. In fact, there's an indication that it will be built. David was allowed to make the preparations, choosing the site, gathering materials, finding the skilled craftsmen. And we see another glimpse into David's heart that he was willing to do all of that groundwork, even though it was not he who was putting up the temple. And it just reminds me that the world has too many people who, as one writer puts, won't plant trees unless they're around to eat the apples. And what the church and what our community needs are people who are willing to plan and pray and think about the future that they themselves will never experience. But we're not thinking of what we will enjoy, but we're thinking about our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren. This very congregation is a result of that kind of forward thinking of individuals that purchased this land and made the provisions. And there's a sense where David is tapping into the mind of God when he's preparing for something that he himself would not be a part of. You know, whenever you have an idea and you go to God and you feel like it's the right thing and God, as it were, slaps your hand, a lot of times we can get our feelings kind of out of sorts. We can pout and say, well, then I'm not going to do anything. We don't see that kind of attitude in David. We see that he truly was willing to allow God to call the shots and he was willing to follow God. And so then we move into verse 8 and following where we start to see some of the promises This first section, verses 8 through the first part of verse 11, uh, uh, Nathan makes three specific promises to David. And the first is that God is going to make David's name great. He's going to be, um, let's see, he's going to be one of the greatest men on earth. And that has come to pass. People know about David and they know about King David even outside of religious circles. They're aware of his uh, his name and his reputation. Uh, the, the second promise is that God is going to provide a home for his people, a land of their own where, they'll, where they will no longer be disturbed by their enemies, where they could be firmly rooted. And that land was the promised land, the nation of Israel. And then I will also give you rest from all your enemies. There will be peace, a name, a land, and rest. And that would be during David's lifetime. And that would be some of the things that he would experience. But now the promises and prophecies, if you want to call them that, switch to after David's gone. What's going to happen with his family? And beginning the second half of verse 11, we begin to see a bigger picture unfold. Remember how David had the idea that he wanted to make a house for God. Now, it doesn't happen always, but it actually works in this particular case where you can have a play on words in Hebrew and it actually makes sense in English. 
Because the word for house in Hebrew can also be translated as temple. So David wanted to build a house for God. But God turns around and says, you know, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. But the word house can also refer to a dynasty, a family, a legacy, an army of descendants. And that's what God is promising David. It's as if God takes David's desire, his noble gesture, where David says, Lord, I want to build you a house, a temple, a place to live with walls and a roof. And God says, no, David, I don't want you to build me a house, a place to live. Instead, I want to build you a house, a dynasty, a family. I want to give you a lineage and a heritage and a descendancy that you can't even begin to imagine. God's purpose was so much bigger than what David had intended. David was thinking of something very, very concrete. And God had a much bigger vision. God's, uh, David's plan involved a temple, a temporary structure which eventually will get destroyed a couple different times throughout Jewish history. God's plan involved something much more lasting than a stone structure. It involved the salvation of the world. And that prayer of Paul, where he thanks God, who is far more abundantly able to give us more than we can ever ask or imagine. And that's what God is doing for David. And so we begin to see that this promise goes a little bit further than just David and his immediate descendants. Now, this is where it gets a little bit tricky because we know we're talking about some of David's immediate family. And Solomon was David's son, and he's the one who actually will build the temple. But intermixed with these prophecies is David's son, as in the next child who will be born physically to David's family, and then a son who will be born further down the road that will be referred to as David's son, David's relative. And so here, there is one that will build a house, and that's referring to Solomon. But then one of David's sons will establish the throne of God will establish his throne forever. And I will be his father. God will be his father. And he will be my son. And when he does wrong, I will punish him. And part of this, on the one hand, is referring to all of the Israelites, Israelite rulers who strayed from God's path, that God punished and disciplined. As we think further down the road, as we look to this individual that this text is pointing to, we understand that Jesus also received punishment, not for his sins, but for the sins that had been heaped on him, the sins that he carried And he suffered from the floggings inflicted by human hands. But verses 15 and 16 are where things get radically intense. 
This text is pointing to someone beyond David. Later texts will refer to this individual as the root of Jesse, as the branch of David. And it points to the Messiah. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning, the first words of the New Testament, we read, This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy. Jesus is the promised son of David. But it also points to this inheritance, this house, this dynasty. And what we understand is that God will never choose to live permanently in a structure made by human hands with human materials. But rather the place for God's home is the human heart. And so the New Testament writers, as they reflect back, they realize that the church is what this text was looking towards. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and the Holy Spirit lives in you? You're the home for God that he's been looking for. First Peter 2 says that we, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. So you and I are the stones in this house that God promised to build, David, in response to David's gesture of building a house for God. And this covenant of grace was sealed by Jesus And this covenant invites us into a relationship with him that was unlike previous covenants and relationships. This covenant says, my love will never be taken away from David or any of David's descendants. Your house and your kingdom, this future house, will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Jeremiah 33 quotes this text and says, if you can break the cycle of day and night, then you can break this covenant. But if you can't break that cycle, then you can't break this covenant and it will endure as long as day and night continue. The law of Moses was dependent on if, if you do this, if you do that, if, if, if. And this covenant of David, this covenant of grace is based on nevertheless. It's not based on our perfection. It's based on nevertheless, I will love you. God doesn't say, I will love you if. But he says, I will love you in spite of and nevertheless. God's love to us is not like the love between a husband and a wife, which can be divorced and can be broken. God's love for us is that of a father or a mother who at whatever level they might disagree and disapprove of their children's actions, they are still mom and dad to that child. In today's world, you can separate Parents and their children, 
But in God's mind, that can't happen. And there is nothing, nothing, Paul says, on this earth that can separate us from God's love. No matter how hard you try, no matter how deep you get involved in something that you shouldn't, no matter how far the world pushes you, and no matter how far you allow yourself to be driven, there is nothing that can separate you from God's love. It is a permanent, forever covenant. And we are the benefactors of that covenant of grace. Jesus is David's son. The one promised back in 2 Samuel 7. And he is the one who continues on the throne. And now we have the opportunity to be that spiritual house. But not just us. We are part of this house for our children and our grandchildren and for generations that we can't even imagine until the world finds its end. And so we operate and we work and we plan for us. But we also think about the future. So let me just challenge all of us, myself included, to spend some time thinking, what am I doing, first and foremost, for my relationship with the king, this promised son of David, this one who is building the temple? What am I doing to strengthen my relationship with him? Secondly, what am I doing to benefit this spiritual house of which I'm a part right now for today? Things like helping our brothers and sisters in the panhandle. Things like giving a cup of cold water to someone who is in need. Things like uh, uh, being a part of what God is involved in right now. And then the third is a little bit more challenging, but what can I do to think and project myself generations down the road. What can I do to provide some sort of blessing for them? It might be that I'm going to take some special time with my grandchildren, as some of you are doing even to this moment. It might be that you find ways to leave certain blessings for future generations. It might be that you collaborate and work with certain organizations or churches to say, okay, this is what I want my estate to be a part of. There's a lot of ways we can do that. What is my relationship with the king? What am I doing to build up his spiritual house right now? And what can I do to build that spiritual house for future generations. All goes back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. So we're going to stand and sing. And if you have a specific need that you'd like to share, if you have a specific prayer request or a thanksgiving that you'd like to offer, uh, we want to give you a time to do that. You can come down to the front while we sing. Uh, If you just need to sit where you are, stand where you are, and reflect, where is your life in this spiritual house? And what is your relationship to this covenant of grace? We would like to help you in that way as well. Uh, Let's all stand and sing.